Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Live from Las Vegas, it's time for you to be Talking Movies with America's most award-winning film critic, John Barber. You're being, John, you're being so gentle. I've heard you give reviews and you're so rough, you're saying. <laughs> How would you have evaluated your own work uh, in some of the films that you did prior to, uh, <laughs> prior to The Longest Shot? I mean, Much better than you, my friend. <laughs> Our next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. Hi there, and welcome to Talking Movies. Ladies and gentlemen, this may be by far the most interesting, most important, and most stimulating show that we have done yet about talking movies. And it was inspired so, by some very, very bright viewers who called me and said, hey, John, could you do us all a favor out of here? There are a lot of us who are interested in all these documentaries and films that have been made about the murder of John Kennedy, and also about the films that you did with Jim Garrison and how he solved the case. So could you, just for us, gather a couple of people together that you really respect and admire and do an entire show devoted to this subject? So I have, and I will, and I have the two best pieces of gold on the planet when it comes to cashing in on the knowledge about the political assassinations of the 60s and of Jim Garrison's solved investigation. And it seems entirely appropriate to me that we are taping this show on March 17th, which is St. Patrick's Day, because the Irish are infamous for creating the Blarney Stone. And the American government is famous for creating the Warren Commission. So there you go, and we're gonna be off and running and we are gonna dismantle the Warren Commission and bring you some monumental truths. And before I introduce my two outstanding guests, I have to say hello to our engineer and director without whom we could not possibly do such a complicated show. And that is Doug Newsom. Doug, how are you today? I'm doing wonderfully well, thank you, John. And I have to thank you in advance. I know that uh, our guests and myself has, have overloaded you with some clips and some pictures that have to be fed into the show. I am so sorry for that. But again, help you because the work you've been doing on these shows for me creatively, it's just been absolutely wonders, wonderful. So I deeply, deeply thank you. And before I introduce our guests, I, I'm going to want to introduce Donald Jeffries first and then chat to him for a minute. And then I want to introduce later Lena Senek so I can chat separately with them. But I think before I start, I should tell the audience a little bit 
about the messenger. And that messenger, one of the messengers is me, one of the other messengers is gonna be Donald Jeffries, and of course then Leno Sanic. So I have to tell you just a little bit about myself because the very sad thing about human beings that I've witnessed is that they never listen to the message. They only listen to the messenger. I mean, when John Kennedy was murdered in 1963, the messenger was the federal government and the media. And they said it was Lee Harvey Oswald. And then along comes Jim Garrison, who believed the government until an accidental meeting with Congressman Hale Boggs, who was the only dissenting member of the Warren Commission. He started his own investigation and proved immediately that Lee Harvey Oswald didn't even fire a gun. So he came forth with his truth. But he was not a strong enough messenger. And the federal government and the media attacked him. And in the two years, he, he arrested Clay Shaw in 1967, but it took him two years to get into court. And in the two years that the media hammered Jim Garrison, not once did they take one of his proven facts and refute it. All they did was name call. And that has become our discourse now in the United States. Not conversations, not research, just we become experts at name calling. So the reason I have to tell you a little bit about myself is because first of all, I don't like to talk about myself. I do not have any opinions. I've always wanted my work alone to speak for itself. But in this case, we are dealing with the most important subject in American history, and that is the murder of the president of the United States by the government of the United States and with the protection and the help of the American media. And so here's what I have to say a little bit about myself. Today, and for the last maybe 20 or 30 years, I have been a political agnostic. You know, during the 60s and 70s, during the height of the Vietnam War, the flower children were all running around and saying, hey, what if they threw a war and nobody showed up? Well, I am all for that. Any human being would be for that. But for the last 30 or 40 years, I've been thinking to myself, what if they threw an election and nobody showed up? Because when I look at American politics, you look at the Democratic Party. If you have voted for a Democrat in the last 20 years, you are flying the Hindenburg and you're about to crash. And if you're voting for a Republican, you're sailing on the Titanic and you're about to crash. So wouldn't it be just wonderful if they threw an election and nobody showed up because the American people were saying, finally saying, hey, hold it, this corruption and this bullshit is enough. So that's what I've been like for the last 20 years. But from the time I came to this country, I have always defined myself as a Thomas Jefferson radical constitutional revolutionary. I was weaned on Thomas Paine, the intellectual founder of the United States. He wrote Common Sense, sold 50,000 copies, and gave every penny to George Washington to arm and feed his troops to fight against the British, okay? And Thomas Jefferson is a drafter of the Bill of Rights. When you look at the Bill of Rights in the Constitution, you will see now they are as meaningless to the government of the United States and to the media of the United States 
as are the Ten Commandments to Christians. They are absolutely and totally empty, empty words. And what Thomas Jefferson said, and these are his actual words, he used the words corporation and he used the words bankers. And he said, in order to defend democracy against the corporations and the bankers, every 20 years, we need a radical revolution. And that the roots of the tree of the liberty, uh, the roots of the tree of democracy be sprinkled with the blood of patriots. Now, I don't think we should be sprinkling blood anywhere, but we should be spreading as much truth as we can. And that's what Donald is going to do tonight with me. And that is what Leno Sanic is going to do tonight with me is spread some of these, these kernels of truths. And I have a couple of other things that I want to say. What Americans now think of as a revolution is January 6th. Here you have Donald Trump, the tiny Tim of American politics, a freak sideshow a self-avowed moral degenerate pussy grabber telling his crowd of followers to even take on his vice president, storm the Senate, and try to reverse a really true, honest vote. And those who do it get arrested, but that man is still running around. 72 million Americans voted for Donald Trump. He is now considered the second most popular man in the United States. When I came to this country in the 1950s, you know who the second most popular man in the United States was? Albert Einstein. Can you believe the United States of America lauding an intellectual like Albert Einstein? And now you have 72 million people devoted to the tiny Tim of American politics, I mean, a freak sideshow. It's incomprehensible. And when I came to this country in the 50s, I must tell you, everybody I encountered, whether they were in media or in politics or they were authors, no matter what they were doing, they were searching for excellence in their lives. Now we were thrilled to just find confidence. Do you know if you took the United States government and its endless corruption and improved it. Or if you took the mainstream media, which is actually Project Mockingbird and the CIA in charge and at work, and you improve that, or you take our anti-intellectual stomach-turning culture and improve that, you know what we still have in this country? We have waste management. It is the most discouraging, as Betty Davis would say, what a dump. And speaking of Betty Davis, when I came to this country again as a former film critic, I would look at it as I would a beautiful old movie starring a beautiful Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. But you know, when I look at America today, you know what I see? I see Baby Jane. It is so ugly, unbelievable. But you want to know something? Even in the dump that we live, there are kernels of gold. And I have two of the best on the entire planet to be my guests today. And so before I introduce them, I have to give you this one little observation based on facts that were broadcast yesterday and today. I carry this little cup with me. I don't know if you see it. It's a little cup of truth. So I, once in a while, I'll take a little cup of truth. So I'm going to tell you, this is 
the Ukraine, and the United States. Do you know that in 1922, the Ukraine was a major part of the Soviet Union? They are no longer. And for 70 years, the Soviet Union has been surrounded by hundreds of American bases, all armed with nuclear weapons. And some of those are stationed in the Ukraine. And so being so close to the Russian border, the Russians move in. Okay, so the Russians move in. What is happening there is horrible. There's no question about that. They have displaced two and a half million people, which is just got awful. But that's what the Russians are doing to a country that's not heirs. But this is what the United States is doing to its own people. Do you know how many Americans there are? There are 329 million Americans. Of those 329 million Americans, 37 million, that is more than 10%, are in abject poverty. And every night, thousands of them go to bed malnourished, and some of them never make up, wake up in the morning because they've died of hunger. We have 10 million permanently unemployed Americans. And then worse than that, we have over 1 million Americans living in cars and living in tents. That is an absolute God-awful disgrace. And you know what Joe Biden did yesterday? Joe Biden announced he is sending $1 billion in aid to the Ukraine. And do you know why? Because ever since the end of the Second World War, and Dwight Eisenhower warned us about the powers of the military-industrial complex, which now own and run this country, there is only profit in war. There is no profit in this country for helping the poor to live a decent life. So these are some of the truths that you are going to have to face as we go along and try to reveal to you some of the excellent work done by some movie makers and some writers to try to inform Americans as to where it all went wrong on November 22nd, 1963. So first, I want to say hello to one of my dearest, dearest friends, one of the greatest writers and researchers in America. He's a host of his own show. He's a guest on hundreds and hundreds of other shows because there's nobody as articulate and as informed by him today about American politics. And that is Donald Jeffries. Donald, how are you today? Well, I'm fine, especially after that glowing introduction. I really appreciate it. Well, I'll tell you, beyond the fact that I respect and admire you so much, the other reason I brought up the business of incompetence is I read your heartbreaking uh, essay, if you will, on the passing of your brother and how difficult it has been for you in dealing with the aftermath of solving some of the problems left by the death of your brother. So would you like to expand on that a little bit and just tell us how it's going for you? Yeah, well, it's just, and I just wanted to put that in the essay. I call, I call the present day America, America 2.0. And I think it basically changed uh, around after 9-11 when they passed the Patriot Act. And so that was, that was pretty much the end of, of real civil liberties in this country. The incompetence level is so mind-boggling, and just having to deal with something like Social Security, and uh, you know, he just trying to get his last payment straightened. And I describe it in the article. I mean, 
every literally every time you call them and you have to wait at least an hour every single time, no matter what, uh, you're going to get a different story. And you so have no I, So can I ask you a question? When you were a young man, what, how old were you if you were around when John Kennedy was killed? And if not, what was the first you heard about it? And what was the impact on you? And what made you get interested in doing research into the assassination? Well, I, I was seven years old, and uh, it, it was one of the most important the most impactful events of my life. And as I describe it, I, again, go back to my brother. I, my brother had a very traumatic incident that happened to him in high school and really led him down the path where he didn't have the life he should have had. And it happened on the same day, November 22nd. So two of the most important wow. events in my life were that day. And uh, so I, and I, I didn't realize that they, they took place in the same day for a long time. But now that I have, I can see, and uh, they formed my, you know, the, my philosophy together because, you know, watching my Catholic family being distraught about JFK, the, the continual coverage on TV, I, I had never really watched. I mean, I knew who Kennedy was as a little kid. He was the first president I, I knew of. And, uh, but I, and but I knew. What, what, what was it that you read or what was it that you saw that convinced you that the government was lying? Well, the, the first thing I read that I, and I, you know, I, I was a big Kennedy fan. I followed, as a little kid, I was really following all the primaries when RFK was assassinated. And so I was more politically aware then, and I was crushed. I kind of thought it would happen, but then I started to think, well, you know, what's going on? Why are they killing Kennedys? And it, even in my little naive 11-year-old mind, I kind of thought, well, maybe they're linked. But it wasn't until I read, uh, there was an article, uh, George O'Toole wrote a book called The Assassination Tape. And uh, they had an excerpt of it in Penthouse Magazine. So as a teenager, I'm checking out Penthouse Magazine. And I actually read the articles. They had some good stuff on the, because you couldn't get that in the, the you know the newspapers or Time Magazine or anything. And uh, they had an excerpt of George O'Toole's assassination tapes. And he just described Oswald's alleged flight down the stairs after the assassination and how uh, Vicki Adams and Sandra Stiles, they were standing, with, you know, they would have seen somebody coming down. It's just, I didn't know anything about the case, but that just made sense. And I said, wow, because I had never thought, you know. Okay, but I when, did, when did, to me, the most earth shattering thing was uh, when uh, Mark Lane wrote Rush to Judgment. Sure. When, how, how old well, were you when you read that? Well, I, I once I read this article, I said, I've got to learn more about this because I had never thought. You know, my father never believed that, you know, Oswald did it. Nobody in my family did. They all thought Johnson did it because they were Catholics and <laughs> they hated a Southerner like him. And they so they just, you know, they they were they were and he acted so suspiciously. So they just so I never thought Oswald did it, but I didn't really study it. And then once you're, that was probably I think I think Rush to Judgment was the first or second book I read. It was 1966. OK, put it on hold just a second, because right. there's so much more to talk to you about. I want now to introduce Lena Senek. Len, where are you and how are you? I'm in Vancouver. And how, uh, oh my God, you look great, the man in purple. And there you are with the guitars. You know, a lot of people don't know this, Len, but you are an absolutely phenomenal musician and guitar player. So they should know that. The other thing that they should know about you, you are by far one of the most modest nicest people I know. So I'm going to say this very loud and in public. If there is anyone out there on this planet 
who wants to dive deeply into all the political assassinations of the 60s and learn everything that they can about them. There are only two places in the world to go. One of the places is YouTube and Mae Brussels archives. Mae Brussels hours of broadcast from years and years ago are as provocative and as topical and as timely and as frightening today as they were then. But over and above that, nobody on the planet has a site as meaningful and as important as that of Leno Sanic. And I say that for two reasons. First of all, May Brussels was just audio. Len makes by far the greatest videos you ever saw. He has something called 50 Reasons for 50 Seasons. And plus, he is alive. So we can talk to him. So you're a Canadian, Len. When did you first hear about the assassination? And when did you become interested in it? Well, first of all, it's 50 reasons for 50 years, okay? <laughs> so, I keep screwing that up. <laughs> yeah, constantly, right, constantly. So uh, I don't remember when I first got interested in, in it, but I just had an interest in the assassination. Uh, I thought it was uh, – I never believed the Warren Commission. I never believed the single bullet, Commission Exhibit 399. And, uh, you know, I just – I never – bought into it so i started digging you know reading listening to lectures well in doing that i mean see again you're being unbelievably be modest because one of jim garrison's strongest supporters and you have sent me dozens and dozens of letters between fletcher prouty and jim garrison mm-hmm. prouty was a strong supporter of garrison you were fletcher prouty's main repositor for all of his files. I mean, he loved you. He said well, we got we got along. We got along. He was a very important person in the Pentagon. In the movie he's portrayed as the the man X by Donald Sutherland. So um uh, that's a composite character, but a lot of the letters Zachary Sklar who wrote the screenplay with Oliver, uh he based that whole dialogue on you know, conversations between Jim Garrison and Fletcher Prouty. And so when you see Donald Sutherland walking along uh, the uh, the uh, um, reflecting pond or wherever that area is down there, um, that's, you know, basically the letters between Jim Garrison and Fletcher Prouty. That's right. But it, it actually, Oliver Stone had to meet in the film, but they never met in person. And well, I- they, they didn't meet at the trial, but they met after the fact. Where? For instance, they oh they met at um, filming, and yes. specifically for sure at, at a rap party for the movie. Yes. So. Um, okay, because when when I when we were doing the research and gathering the material of yeah. the list of movies, there were two clips from the movie JFK that I was considering, and one of them was that conversation between uh, Donald Sutherland, right, and Kevin Costner. Right. Yeah. And you recall the conversation, it was about Bell Aircraft. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, I mean, it speaks for itself. It talks, Fletcher is just kind of telling Jim Garrison, Kevin Costner there, how how the world works. And he's explaining that uh, this is a big, big money machine uh, 
you know, the, the Department of Defense is, is uh, being pulled by. And they're setting the tone. They are saying, we want to sell helicopters. We want to sell armaments. And we'll put our uh, people, you know, around Congress and, and infiltrate uh, to, to really make sure that this happens. Well, so the, bank, the Bank of Boston, all these guys, they're pushing forward their agenda. And you get elected and you're just like riding a, riding a tidal wave. Well, that was one of the clips that I thought of. But, you know, it was more than the money making that got John Kennedy killed. And I picked a very small, what I think is a simpler clip from that film, which we will say, uh, see later, which I think is in probably the most important 25 seconds in the entire movie. I want to, uh, Doug, are you still there? Indeed I am. Could you do me a, fla- a favor and could you play when Jim Garrison in 1967 was a DA of New Orleans? He arrested Clay Shaw and he went on camera. He was on the news to say this. Could you play that clip for us, please? As I certainly wouldn't say with confidence uh, that we would make... Uh... Uh, arrests and have convictions afterwards if I did not know that we had solved the, the, the assassination of President Kennedy beyond any shadow of a doubt. Uh, now, the stunning thing about that clip is how confident he is that he has solved the case. What do you think he was thinking when he said that? Do you think he was thinking that perhaps it was just a small element of the CIA that murdered the president? Do you think he was totally unaware of the fact that it was the entire establishment that murdered the president? Your thoughts? Who, me or Don? Uh, either one of you. Oh, well, I mean, I, you know, I can go too, but I, I, I think, I mean, and I certainly have great admiration for Garrison as you do, but I think Garrison did solve the case at the ground level. And you know, I, I share Garrison's view that Oswald was uh, was an undercover agent and he was assigned to infiltrate a group at the time of the attack that he was told was planning to assassinate the president. I think that's the group that you see in JFK and that Garrison was targeting uh, people like Ferry and Shaw and Ruby and a lot of the anti-Castro Cuban exiles that were hanging around the area uh, and hang around these people. But I don't think for a second that these people actually the orchestrators of the assassination. And I think probably a lot of them, certainly Ruby and Ferry, were being manipulated themselves. Well, so when, I, I, when I met Garrison and I spent three and a half hours putting him on camera, we spent another six and a half hours when he was off camera, when he wouldn't, didn't want to be on the record and he, he was just speculating. But the thing that staggered Garrison is he had solved the case and he was sure that he was going to get into court. Now, I, it was 1967 when this happened. I was still a struggling comic. I didn't get the AM show until three years later when I tried to book Garrison because he had written this wonderful book, Heritage of Stone. I booked him and I was fired. But in 1967, he was prevented by the government and the media from getting into a court of law in spite of the fact that they kept calling him a nut. Now, I'm just a stumbling around comic trying to make a living, but I'm sort of street smart because I'm on the streets since I'm six years of age. And I tell my friends, hey, listen, if Jim Garrison doesn't have any facts, 
Why doesn't the government get out of his way and let him fall on his face? And I lost every one of my friends, every one of them. They thought I was an absolute nut for not believing our government. And of course, look what happened. It was indeed true that Jim Garrison was right. Now along comes, we were talking about Mark Lane's rush to judgment. He wrote it in 1966. A fabulous, it is probably the most definitive book on destroying the fallacies of what were the Warren report. No other book ever written since comes as close to the legal excellence of Rush the Judgment written by Mark Lane. A year later, he and Emile D'Antonio go to Texas to interview some of the important witnesses in the assassination. Their movie came out in 1967, and it was a staggering film. And what I have done here, I have found an obscure brief interview with a fellow named Simmons, who was one of the most perfect witnesses to a shot coming from behind the the fence at the grassy knoll. Doug, could you play that brief clip from Rush to Judgment, please? Uh, I really don't know what the, what the situation is about. Nobody has told me anything. Somebody is accused of uh, of uh, murdering a policeman. I know nothing more than that. And I do request uh, for someone to come forward to give me uh, a legal assistance. Did you kill the president? No, I've not been charged with that. In fact, nobody has said that to me yet. Uh, the first thing I heard about it was when the newspaper reporters in the hall uh, asked me that question. That wasn't actually the clip. That was the clip of Lee Harvey Oswald, which we never saw in detail until we saw Mark Lane's rush to judgment. Would you like and, me to play that other clip now? Yes, please do that, Doug. Thank you so much. Were you a witness to the assassination of President Kennedy? Yes. I was standing on the Elm Street overpass at the time of the assassination. Were you there alone or with others? Uh, there was a group of employees from the Union Terminal at the time and uh, two Dallas policemen. What did you see and what did you hear? As the presidential limousine was rounding the curve on Elm Street, there was a loud explosion. At the time, I didn't know what it was, but it sounded like a loud firecracker or gunshot, and it sounded like it came from the left and in front of us, towards the wooden fence. And there was a puff of smoke that came underneath the trees on the embankment. Where was the puff of smoke, Mr. Simmons, in relation to the wooden fence? It was right directly in front of the wooden fence. i show you a picture published by the Warren Commission as Commission Exhibit Number 2215, which is a view of the triple underpass area. I ask you if you'd be good enough to mark with this pen with an X the area where you thought the shots came from and where you saw the smoke. It was this area here. After you heard the shot and saw the smoke, what did you do? I was talking with a patrolman Foster at the time and as soon as we heard the shots we ran around to the wooden fence 
And when we got there, there was no one there, but there was footprints in the mud around the fence, and there was footprints on the wooden two-before railing on the fence. Were you questioned by the Dallas police on that day? Yes, I was. Did you give your name to the Dallas police? Yes, I did. Did you tell them what you just told me? Yes, I did. Were you subsequently questioned by agents of the Federal Bureau of Investigation? About a month later, I was questioned by the FBI. Did you tell them what you told me and what you told the Dallas police? Uh, yes, I did. Were you ever called as a witness by the Warren Commission? No, sir, I wasn't. Uh, two things about those clips. The first clip, that's the very first time we actually got to see Lee Harvey Oswald. And even the two detectives who guarded Lee Harvey Oswald just before he was shot said it would be impossible for anybody to be accused of killing the president of the United States or even offer a certificate and remain that calm. It is absolutely impossible, both of them said. So now to you, Len, how many times did you interview Mark Lane on Black Ops? Oh, I don't know. Um, once a year for sure while he was live. I, I just never counted. So more than 10 times, I think. They were the best interviews ever of Mark Lane. That movie that he made with D'Antonio was seen by millions of people. Did he ever talk about how discouraged he felt that even though it was seen by millions, nothing happened as a result of his work? No, I, I don't think he felt that at all. Um, I think a lot happened from him. I mean, maybe not enough, but uh, um, he was certainly well known. Well, w there's no question. He was by far the most popular speaker in talking about the yeah. facts concerning me. Nobody was more articulate or even and entertaining than Mark Lane. But it had to be monumentally discouraging to him. And also, he became a very close friend of uh, Jim Garrison. As a matter of fact, for the nine hours that I spent with Garrison, Mark Lane was sitting right next to us. But Mark Lane never said a word, but they were the closest of friends. He had to be totally discouraged. Well, did he look discouraged when you were there? No. You know, that was the remarkable thing about it. And also, the same thing with Mae Bressel. Penn Jones, uh, who wrote Pardon My Groove, was on May Brussels' show, and they had a sort of an on-the-air argument. May Brussels was so assured that because of what was happening, the House um, Select Committee on Assassination would indeed find the truth and there would be convictions. But Penn Jones said it will never happen. This case will never become public and nobody will ever go to prison to be charged. And, of course, Penn Jones died being right, but till the day she died, Mae Bressel had hope. Do you have any hope? Do I? Do, Do uh, you well, um, I had a quest to learn what happened, and I, through my dealings with Fletcher Prouty, uh, was satisfied. So I've already kind of climbed the Mount Everest of my search for information. So I think after you, after you do that, uh, you know, then it's on to the next quest of interest. So the thing is that um, 
the poverty of the city of Dallas on the 50th anniversary, uh, America, the, the just the, the total failings of everything. It, I'm Canadian, so it doesn't bother me. It's just it, you look at it and, um, you know, it's not up to me to fix anything. But I really had an interest and I thought found out through my, you know, correspondence and friendship with Fletcher Prouty. There was a man who actually worked in the Pentagon and he worked for the military for 23 years. But in the Pentagon, 1955 to 64, there was somebody that would, if you asked him, tell you the way the world worked. And a lot of the stuff is uncomfortable to learn. Uh, Jim Douglas's book is called JFK and the Unspeakable, meaning that when you really get down to the nitty gritty and you find out what happened, it's it's almost in in his eyes and the, and his author friend, um, um, uh, forget his name. Is it uh, Thomas Melton? Uh, anyway, um, well, Thomas Merton is I Merton, Merton, Merton. Right, right. I think he first coined the, the term the unspeakable. So, uh, just saying that, you know. Um, well, you know what? That is a terrible expression, unspeakable, because when you know the truth, it should not be unspeakable. And what it should lead to is action. And there has been absolutely no action. But there was a film that came along in 1973 that was a monumental hit. And it staggered me. I was not yet a film critic at the time, but being interested in the story, of course, I rushed to see the film. And that film was called Executive Action. Do you remember the first time you saw it? Yeah, it's fantastic. And I I might not remember exactly the first time because I didn't know all the facts. Like sometimes you watch a film like that and you wonder, you know, well, is this true? Is this word for word or or, or is this just, a, you know, artistic interpretation or something? But uh, certainly in some of the other films. Um, well, the thing that I, the reason I want to bring it up is sure, because there were major act, actors, Burt Lancaster and Robert Ryan, megastars who were putting their reputations on the line to tell the truth about this film. Uh, Donald, do you remember seeing... Um, executive action sure absolutely and I, I saw it well before i saw rush to judgment because rush to judgment i didn't see that was not available anywhere and i was too young when i guess i don't know I don't think it played if it played in many or any theaters but uh i was too young to know about it at the time but later when i started getting into the assassination I, and I got a copy on vhs and certainly watched it many times but yeah executive action used to be on television every once in a while and when i first saw it i was especially I had just started reading about the books and so I was especially impressed with the collage of faces at the end of all the mysterious deaths of witnesses and everything. Very powerful. You know, the way it is it. terrific. Well, I, I picked what, uh, a brief opening clip that says a whole lot about why Kennedy was eliminated. Doug, could you play that clip from Executive Action made in 1973 directed by Dennis Miller? American history has one family held such an enormous concentration of political power. The plan is perfectly plain. Two terms for JFK, two for Bobby, and two for Ted. Which makes action now imperative. What kind of action? Executive. Burt Lancaster. I'll take it from here, Bob. Robert Ryan and Will Gear take executive action. Your thoughts on that film, isn't that staggering? 
Yeah, absolutely. And seeing Grandpa Walton playing a role like that, Will Gear was actually very, very politically active, and I think he was labeled a communist. And, the, and, and um, to Garrison, the really interesting thing about that conversation is that everybody believes that Alan Dulles was the architect of the assassination. Well, he was the mechanical architect of the assassination, but it's this Will Gear character who's giving the Alan Dulleses in the room the authority to go ahead and murder the president of the United States. And when we come to the end of this particular show, when Jim Garrison told me to turn off the camera and turn on the, uh, turn off the microphones, he said, I do not speculate, John, but I'm going to give you the name of the man that I believed was the Will Gear in reality that told Alan Dulles to go ahead and murder the president of the United States. And the next movie that came out that really awakened me a lot more was a movie called The Parallax View. It came out, out about a year later. And it was uh, written, uh, directed by Alan Pakula. Alan Pakula was a 21-year-old producer when I was a 20-year-old mailboy at Paramount. So I knew him for a long, long time. And we remained friends, even though he became one of the classier filmmakers in America. Clute was one of his, all the president's men, and I'm just an ordinary film critic. But he called me into his office one day and he handed me a script and it was called The Parallax View. And he said, I would love it if you would play the senator, the guy that, or the politician that they are. And I said, I can't do that. And he said, certainly you can. I said, no. It would be a conflict of interest. Now, isn't that a dreadful expression and wasted expression in America today, a conflict of interest? I mean, I was offered all kinds of parts as a critic and I turned it down and he went ahead and made this film. And Len Osanik was able to track down the actual author of the Parallax View. So after we take a look at this very frightening clip this is the clip. Warren Beatty started in the film. And kudos to Warren Beatty for making this monster mega hit at the box office that it didn't say John Kennedy. But everybody who saw this film said, this is how they murdered John Kennedy. So, Doug, would you play that clip, please? Robert Kennedy. And Donald, I must tell you, in the theater, when that shot rang out and they blew the brains out of Warren Beatty, every single person in that theater screamed. And I know that you were smart enough to be able to track down the actual author of the Parallax View. And didn't you get to interview him? Yeah, I did. What was Lord. his name? What was Lord. his name? And tell us how it happened and what he said. 
well, his name's Lawrence Singer. He wrote the book. Uh, the book is a little different uh, than the movie, you know, similar to like uh, the, the Wag the Dog film as well. But uh, in the, the book, he was in the military and he was in intelligence and he came across some of these tests they had to weed out people or to try to select people that had no morals, no qualm about killing people or doing anything. And they, he was just, he had an interest about that and he looked into it. I mean, I don't, I haven't listened to the energy for, for quite a while, but he just, you know, for an hour, an hour and a half discussed on how he came to write that and his interest in um, the military having these kind of tests. And actually, rather than that scene you picked, I think when he goes into the uh, the Parallax Corporation is showing the film, they try to judge his reactions to it. That well, was that's brilliant. It is. That is groundbreaking. Oh, my God. It is. Do you still have that interview? Yes, I do. Yeah. Could you do me a favor? Could you email that interview me, to me? Because I would like to post it on Facebook. Because sure. it has. Okay. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Now, we get to the business of the arrest of Clay Shaw. Everybody in the media, in the mainstream media, say that Jim Garrison lost his case. He never lost his case. He only lost the conspiracy case against Clay Shaw. But the conspiracy case was not his main case. His main case was perjury, that he could nail Clay Shaw on perjury. So what I want to show you right now, this is how wonderful a human being Jim Garrison was as a human being and how professional he was as a district attorney, and not only in protecting his case, but in protecting the rights and the reputation of the man that he was arresting. So, Doug, could you play that clip? I think it's called Hearsay. There were marble statues of penises on his dresser. There were uh, whips and chains uh, in his closet. Garrison would not let his staff mention Shaw's deviant homosexuality. To protect Shaw's rights in his own case, Garrison took his case before a grand jury, which quickly indicted. In an extra-legal move to further protect Shaw, Garrison went before a three-judge panel. To prove his client's innocence, Shaw's attorney introduced the 26 volumes of the Warren Report as evidence. The judges ruled the 26 volumes inadmissible. They said they did not constitute an investigation. They were only hearsay. I'm the lawyer who tried to introduce it, and that is, that is accurate. Had the media made this legal ruling public, the government's warn report, as well as the government itself, might have justifiably collapsed. Instead, the attacks on Garrison grew more vicious and more illegal. Do you find that staggering? that the mainstream media never reported the findings of a three-judge panel, the three most elite judges in the state of Louisiana, saying that this was not an investigation. It was hearsay. Are you staggered that we never heard about it? I mean, I, I certainly, I, I would have been at that time. Again, I was too young. I hadn't started following yet, but uh, in retrospect, obviously, it's... Uh, having studied and written about the, the what I call our state-controlled media since then, I think this the, the Jim Garrison, the attack on Jim Garrison, the job that the media did, 
that you documented so well was really the first instance that showed exactly what, how monolithic they were. And this was before, of course, your favorite subject about the, uh, the consolidation of the media in the 1990s, the awful act passed under Bill Clinton, but this was before then. But even so, they acted in lockstep. Garrison had, he was attacked relentlessly. And I think that he ended, he wound up with a case that was certainly not what he wanted because he had to deal with a bunch of governors that would not extradite witnesses, people and governors, including John Connolly, ironically, and Ronald Reagan. They would not, I mean, that was unheard of at that time. And of course, he, he lost a, a couple of key witnesses. But you see, if, if you look Perry. at the clip, the, the thing that his aide said, he would not let the press or anybody in his office talk about the deviant homosexuality right. of Clay Shaw. Now, at the time of Shaw's arrest, he was one of the most respected businessmen and home builders and home designers in uh, New Orleans. But Jim Garrison, amongst the other witnesses against Clay Shaw, because Clay Shaw denied that he ever knew Lee Harvey Oswald or any of these people, he had 87 witnesses who saw Clay Shaw with Lee Harvey Oswald, but more than that, he had three 20-year-old male prostitutes who signed affidavits swearing that they were paid $20 to have sex with Clay Shaw, David Ferry, and Lee Harvey Oswald. As a matter of fact, whenever they were meeting, they were homosexual gatherings. And Jim Garrison knew that if he got to put Clay Shaw on the stand because he was convicted in eight minutes of perjury. So Garrison won the most important part of his case. And he knew if he gets him on the stand, the minute you see three gay homosexuals walking into that courtroom and Clay Shaw sees them and recognizes them and knows that they're going to be witnesses against him. It's going to be like a Perry Mason uh, a script. He's going to jump up and say, yes, I was with the CIA. And Garrison knew that would happen. But what happened? The government knew it too. And so they stepped in and illegally stopped the prosecution of an obviously guilty, perjured proven man. And then just months after that, Clay Shaw magically dies. Jim Garrison only got close to telling his story uh, on television, got close once with Steve Allen, but Steve had to have somebody on who would put him down a lot. And then quite accidentally, he happened to get on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Uh, Mort Saul was one of Jim Garrison's investigators. Mort Saul gave up a fabulous career to run to New Orleans to help solve the murder of John Kennedy and was a major aide to, uh, to uh, Garrison. And Garrison kept telling him, listen, you're also a friend of Bobby's. You t- better tell Bobby to go public with his doubts. Otherwise, they're going to murder him too. And indeed, he told Bobby. Bobby said nothing. And, and was shot. So anyway, Mort Saul's on uh, Johnny Carson's show. Johnny asked him, you know, what he's doing. And Mort says he is uh, doing research with Jim Garrison. And the audience starts to cheer. They are just cheering the name of Jim Garrison 
And here's a guy that's only been maligned by the federal government and by the media for years. And they're cheering a guy. They just hear his name. So then uh, Mort says, listen, why don't you book him on the show? Listen to the audience. He said, I will if, if they'll let me. We have a very, very brief clip here now of when he was on the show and Johnny Carson was very, very ill-prepared by the CIA and the FBI to handle a man as bright and as articulate as Jim Garrison's. So, Doug, would you play the Tonight Show clip, please? Who's suppressing all of this information on whose order? The executive order, which forbids every person in this audience and every person listening to this program, which forbids them to look at this evidence until September in the year 2039, was issued by the President of the United States. Does that answer your question? He's suppressing it. For what possible reason? Why don't you ask him, John? <laughs> Unbelievable. And millions of people saw that, and millions of people applauded, and again, nothing happened. So my question to you, Don, why do you think nothing happened even after that exposure? Well, I think again, you you have this monolithic force of the, of the press, and they can uh, you know, look at look at two thousand and eight when the banker bailout, when polls showed that ninety six percent of the people were against it. Did you see any indicate it happened anyhow? And and so I, th I think we don't have any representation in politics, and we don't have any representation in the media either, because the media should have reflected like a lot of other conspiracies that I've written about, the polls for the JFK assassination from almost the very beginning showed that a huge majority of Americans didn't accept that Oswald did it alone. And, so, and you know, they still, they still feel that way. Yeah. And, the, and the other thing that was amazing when I interviewed Garrison, he said on camera, aside from the fact that the assassination was a no-risk operation in Dallas, he said, there are those in the media who will spread the fic fictions before the truths are out about the assassination. In other words, he was talking about CBS. He was talking about uh, Walter Cronkite. And he was talking about Dan Rather. And the two largest, most vicious attackers of Jim Garrison were, of course, Walter Cronkite and uh, Dan Rather. And they crucified him. And you see in the American media and the second assassination of President John F. Kennedy, which by far is the citizen cane of all the documentaries or films ever made about the movie. Now, um, Oliver Stone's JFK is by far the greatest and most important movie ever made in America. As a matter of fact, it's the only important movie ever made in America because something that's that important is something that improves society and informs society. And Oliver Stone's film did. It created the Record Assassinations Act. And Congress was supposed to release all the files over three years ago. And each president cave, caves into it. Anyway, because Walter Cronkite and Dan Rather even having this enormous CBS platform week after week could not convince the public that Garrison was a fraud. They sent down Mike Wallace. Do you remember who Mike Wallace was? Unfortunately, this hour is up.
but it is so compelling and so interesting. We are going to have a part two of Talking Movies, talking about the films about the murder of John Kennedy and the Solve case by Jim Garrison. That will be in two weeks. And until then, good luck.